At the bottom of the South China Sea, you'll find a myriad of strange scenes. An eel that has made its home in the cockpit of a UH-1 Huey helicopter. Schools of fish swimming over rusted M-16s and tattered U.S. Army sea ration packs. A spotted stingray floating over broken rotor blades. A graveyard of military machinery. Artifacts from a lost war from a bygone era. The final resting place for millions of dollars of military hardware. Abandoned like Vietnam itself by the United States. This is a story of the bitter resolution of the Vietnam War and how the United States was forced to answer the question, how do you end a war you cannot win? My name is Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. This is episode 57, A White Christmas in Saigon. When the Nixon administration took over in 1969, all the data on North Vietnam and on the United States was fed into a Pentagon computer. Population, gross national product, manufacturing capability, number of tanks, ships, and aircraft, size of the armed forces, and the like. The computer was then asked, when will we win? It only took a moment to give the answer. You won in 1964. This perhaps apocryphal story reveals better than any the failures of American strategy in Vietnam. By 1974, a decade after their projected victory, the United States was no closer to winning, and ground troops were almost entirely withdrawn. Their failures had been almost entirely strategic. In the U.S. military meetings, no one at the table was an expert in Vietnamese culture. No anthropologists, no historians. When you're a military advisor, Every problem has a military solution. Over the course of the war, the United States dropped more than 7 million tons of bombs in Vietnam, more than double the amount dropped in the entirety of the Second World War. An area the size of Massachusetts had been covered in the poisonous defoliant known as Agent Orange. Needless to say, this strategy failed to win the hearts and minds of the rural populace of Vietnam. When Senator Fritz Hollings visited Saigon, he was greeted by General Westmoreland, who proudly proclaimed, We're killing these people at a rate of 10 to 1. Senator Hollings remained unimpressed. Westy, Americans don't care about the 10. They care about the 1. The senator was right. Troops who did return home faced hardships as American citizens began to lose faith in the war. Robust anti-war protests engulfed Washington, D.C. day and night. In some cases, protesters were driven away by riot police with flak jackets and M-16s, the same gear currently being used in Vietnam. Some veterans now openly threw their medals they had received in Vietnam upon the steps of the Capitol building. The U.S. of A. finally realized what it had been refusing to realize for all of those years about the war in Vietnam. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. With firepower and supplies provided by China and the Soviet Union, the Army of Northern Vietnam strung together victories over southern forces and began closing in on the capital of the Republic of Vietnam, Saigon. However, the chief American diplomat, Ambassador Graham Martin, remained confident. His own son had died in the war, and he couldn't bring himself to believe that he had died for nothing. Martin said, quote, he had not been appointed ambassador to give Vietnam away to the communists." Unquote. His confidence did not falter. 
even as the northern Vietnamese forces inched ever closer. The leaders in the city had been assured by Richard Nixon that he would intervene if Saigon went under siege. But on August 9, 1974, President Nixon, embroiled in the Watergate scandal, resigned from the presidency. His promises that the capital of Vietnam would never fall left with him. The North Vietnamese forces captured the port city of Hue on March 30, 1975. They now had control of the entirety of the Central Highlands. They set their sights on Saigon. Even as regiments of South Vietnamese forces defected to the communists and as CIA informants stopped responding, Ambassador Martin's resolve was unwavering. He ensured the CIA agents, Marine officers, and South Vietnamese politicians that there would be no attack on Saigon. Many in the American intelligence community began to believe that Martin had lost his grip on reality. Many Americans began mailing their belongings back to the States. American agents at the U.S. Embassy began tallying up the amount of Americans and at-risk Vietnamese civilians and contractors in need of evacuation should Saigon fall to the northern forces. They feared thousands of Vietnamese civilians who had conspired with the Americans would be massacred. The final number of at-risk people they finally arrived at was 1.6 million. Despite Ambassador Martin's idealism, many civilians knew they had to leave. Planes arriving at the Saigon International Airport were mostly empty. Planes leaving were completely full. People who couldn't afford a plane ticket sold their belongings and hitched rides on boats leaving the harbor. Old shipping vessels, usually crewed by a few dozen, now carried hundreds upon hundreds of refugees out of the city. Some tankers were so overcrowded that they sank in the harbor, sending hundreds of refugees into the water, forced to swim back to the soon-to-be-invaded city. In early April 1975, President Gerald Ford signed into law Operation New Life, which urged immigration services to prepare the United States for thousands of Vietnamese immigrants, and Operation Babylift, which would evacuate a few thousand Vietnamese orphans, accompanied by American nurses. President Ford waited at an airbase in San Diego to receive the first arriving orphans. But the aircraft never arrived. Soon after takeoff, the bay doors opened, causing explosive decompression, which led to a crash landing. There were 138 fatalities, most being infants. The stakes in Saigon grew ever higher, as many worried about the structural integrity of all of the aging evacuation aircraft, but plans for a wholesale evacuation needed to be prepared immediately. The CIA distributed top-secret documents containing emergency evacuation plans to high-risk communities. The emergency airlift plans were called Operation Frequent Wind. The call sign to report to evacuation checkpoints was the song White Christmas. At this point, Saigon was nearly surrounded. Some American politicians and CIA leaders were losing faith in South Vietnamese President Wing Dong Chu. Under immense pressure, he fired his prime minister, and as things got worse, he resigned. When his vice president took over, Ambassador Martin, ever the optimist, believed they could finally negotiate a delayed phase-out evacuation over the coming months. His hopes were dashed when North Vietnamese leaders declared the new president as just another puppet over Radio Hanoi in the north. On April 29, 1975, the People's Army of North Vietnam began their final assault on the city. Civilians in Saigon who hadn't heard a gunshot in seven years panicked as the northern soldiers advanced. 
Defected pilots from the South Vietnamese Air Force dropped bombs on the airport they once defended, cratering the runways. By this point, the harbor was nearly empty. The only way out of Saigon was via helicopter airlift. Reluctantly, Ambassador Martin gave the order to initiate Operation Frequent Wind. And on that muggy summer afternoon in 1975, drowning out the sounds of the cicadas and intermittent gunfire, the song the CIA selected to signal the evacuation played over the loudspeakers. Nervous residents began their respective journeys to the evacuation sites. They carried all they could, but dropped many of their belongings in a panic along the way. South Vietnamese army uniforms littered the streets as soldiers tried to quickly blend back into the civilian population. All the while, Bing Crosby's dulcet tones floated out over the residential loudspeakers. Crosby's voice soon had to compete with a host of explosions that rocked the suburbs of the city as the northern forces closed in on Saigon. Helicopters touched down on rooftops of apartments to find lines of refugees snaking around the buildings. As their rotor blades kicked up trash and debris, worried mothers tried the best they could to keep track of their children amongst the throngs of people clamoring for a spot in line. The first batches of refugees were loaded on board, packed in like sardines, and then the helicopters took off as quickly as they came in. They ferried horrified refugees across the South China Sea to the waiting flotilla of American carriers and battleships. It was the first trip of many. At the U.S. Embassy, it was pandemonium. Marines hacked away at a tamarind tree with a chainsaw to make more room in the parking lot for helicopters to land. Secretaries shredded classified documents and took to the typewriters with hammers. Two huge incinerators were set up on the roof of the embassy. Bag after bag of documents was set ablaze. Bottles of fine cognac, once reserved for VIP guests, were passed around from agent to agent. They could hear the rockets and artillery fire now. The gunshots sounded even closer. The gunshots they heard were not enemy soldiers, but friendlies, South Vietnamese soldiers committing suicide. With a roar, helicopters packed with refugees rose overhead, kicking up flurries of shredded classified documents. It was as if the embassy was in a snow globe. As the blizzard subsided, they nervously surveyed the mountains of classified materials overflowing from thousands of cardboard boxes. They were running out of time. Agents furiously shredded and burned as much of the classified material as they could until they were ordered onto a helicopter heading for the flotilla. Ambassador Martin insisted on being the last American to leave Vietnam. He would not be granted that symbolic act. A helicopter arrived with U.S. soldiers with orders directly from the president stating that the ambassador was to be evacuated. If he refused, he would be arrested. Martin boarded the helicopter. A contingent of Marines guarded the walls of the embassy as some desperate refugees tried to bypass their place in line by climbing over. Families were separated as triage prioritized some and not others. Thousands were now crowded around the embassy, looking for a way in and a way out. The People's Army of North Vietnam was closing in. The American flag was lowered from the embassy flagpole for the last time. CIA officer Thomas Polgar sent the last American message out of Vietnam. Quote, This will be the final message from Saigon Station. It has been a long fight, and we have lost. Those who fail to learn from history are forced to repeat it. 
Let us hope that we will not have another Vietnam experience and that we have learned our lesson. Saigon, signing off. Unquote. Mr. Polgar then destroyed the machine on which he had sent the cable. Thunderstorms hung on the horizon as the sun set. The helicopters kept coming throughout the night. By the early morning, almost every American had been evacuated. Only a single unit of Marines remained on the roof of the embassy. Vietnamese civilians, still hopeful for another helicopter, waited in the parking lot. Meanwhile, the American flotilla in the South China Sea was experiencing problems of its own. CIA agents, U.S. Marines, nervous refugees, and American diplomats shielded their faces from the winds of the incoming and outgoing helicopters. Some Vietnamese citizens who either had private aircraft or commandeered craft that the Americans had left behind began showing up. The fleet couldn't tell if the aircraft were friendly or not, but they took the chance and allowed them to land. Their desperate ploys paid off. By this point, so many helicopters were dropping off Americans and refugees that space on the decks of the carriers became extremely limited. As pilots struggled to find space to drop off their evacuees, Navy officers gave the orders to begin dumping aircraft. Soldiers, agents, and refugees alike joined together and pushed aircraft over the sides of the ships. Millions of dollars worth of military hardware plunged into the South China Sea. Those helicopters had meant everything to the soldiers watching. Dust off, resupply, transport, fire support. Many soldiers who saw the familiar Huey helicopters as symbols of hope during the war mourned as chopper after chopper was thrown overboard. But they couldn't push them all overboard fast enough. The frenzy of helicopters and civilian craft over the flotilla forced the military brass to make some tough decisions. Flight directors on the aircraft carriers radioed to the helicopters, ordering them to drop off their occupants and then abandon the craft over the open ocean. Small boats and support craft would then pick them up. Splashes could be seen all around the carriers as pilots bailed out of the helicopters moments before crashing into the South China Sea. Rotors cut through the waves before shattering. A swarm of small boats dispersed from the fleet to retrieve the pilots bobbing on the swells. Their respective Huey helicopters flipped and slowly sank into the deep. Back at the embassy, the thousands of Vietnamese citizens huddled in the parking lot began to lose hope. The Marines who had been waiting on the building began losing hope as well. Their radio was broken, so they had no way of contacting the American flotilla. They had been waiting for hours, and no more helicopters had come. There were no more sounds of artillery or gunfire echoing in the streets, no more dreaming of white Christmases. All forms of southern resistance had broken down. As the sun rose, the Marines gathered and agreed that the North Vietnamese forces came, they would fight to the bitter end. After hours of waiting, though, a massive twin-rotor Chinook helicopter finally arrived to evacuate them. That unit of Marines was the last of the American forces to leave Vietnam. The war was officially over. The dejected Vietnamese in the parking lot slowly melted back into the city, thinking of ways to survive the forthcoming regime. Many thousands of refugees would create makeshift rafts to try and reach the American flotilla by sea. Most never even got close. Thousands would drown. Within a few hours, a tank from the People's Army of Vietnam broke through the main gate of the embassy. Shortly thereafter, the flag of northern Vietnam, well, now just Vietnam, a yellow star on a red background, rose over the embassy. 
Saigon was renamed Ho Chi Minh City. Vietnamese officers combed through the thousands of pages of remaining classified documents. They forced captured soldiers to collect the shredded papers and began a months-long effort to piece together the classified material. This would eventually lead to the capture of thousands of South Vietnamese co-conspirators. While there was no massive wave of executions like the United States feared, there were plenty of extrajudicial killings. Hundreds of thousands were sent to labor and re-education camps. In the end, Operation Frequent Wind has been deemed a success. Around 7,000 refugees heard a Christmas song, headed to the evacuation point, and boarded a helicopter in hopes of a new future in the face of defeat. Pilots worked round the clock, some for well over 48 hours over the course of the operation. Amidst all the chaos and confusion, there were only two American casualties, two pilots lost at sea. In all of the various evacuations via the airport and civilian vessels from the harbor, well over 100,000 people successfully evacuated the soon-to-be-captured city. Over the next few years, another U.S. operation, this one called Operation New Arrivals, settled tens of thousands of Vietnamese refugees across nearly every state in the Union. Those worried mothers, injured soldiers, and young children from Vietnam eventually became American citizens and built lives for themselves in Vermont or Idaho or Pennsylvania. The new culture they found themselves in was strange at first. The homesickness was at times overwhelming. But as the months passed and the seasons changed, they settled in and made the best of it. Winter arrived and with it Christmas. And it's easy to imagine a Vietnamese family in some small town in New England perhaps out on a shopping mall or a drive-in, when a song comes over the sound system. A song that, for them, sparks a sudden anxiety, a subtle panic that subsides to a conflicted wistfulness. A song that takes them back to their last hours in Saigon. Scraps of shredded white paper on the breeze, helicopters crashing into the sea. Their last glimpse of home, vanishing over the western horizon. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton. Our story editor is the one and only Thomas Harlander. We are a proud member of the Orbital Jigsaw Network. Here's some facts that didn't make the episode. The song White Christmas was written by Irving Berlin in 1940 while staying at a resort hotel on a sunny day in Southern California. When he finished the song and took it to his secretary, he reportedly said, quote, I want you to take down a song I wrote over the weekend. Not only is it the best song I have ever written, it's the best song that anybody has ever written. The unorthodox melancholy melody at a mere 54 words, expressing the simple yearning for a return to happier times, instantly became a wartime classic. It was further popularized by Bing Crosby throughout the 1940s. Having sold well over 100 million copies, it is by far the best-selling and perhaps most popular song of all time. You can follow Historium on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where I share various photos and paintings from history. And if you want more episodes, you can find those on patreon.com historium. As always, thanks for listening.